I'm Coulter DeVries, owner of Ranch Investor Advisory and Brokerage Services. I'm an accredited land consultant with the Realtor Land Institute and proud member of ASFMRA. The Ranch Investor Podcast is the most downloaded and informative industry-specific content that intrigues while entertains. Hey, listeners. Thanks for tuning in. We appreciate you coming on board with us every week. Coulter DeVries here with Ranch Investor. Just wanted to ask really quick, if we could get you to jump on any of our social media platforms, we are out there in the digital ghetto. Please jump on and let us know what topics you're interested in. We'd like to bring up more episodes around topics that you are wanting to hear more about. So please let us know. Thank you. Welcome everyone to the Ranch Investor Podcast. After much feedback, positive feedback from the Chris Raleigh Harvest Returns episode, our listeners wanted to hear more about crowdfunding as it relates to farm and ranch investments. And that can be equity investments or debt in the case of Jesse Nelson with the American Beef Ranch in Southern Idaho and Chris Raleigh of Harvest Returns. There's there's going to be plenty more ways to structure these these crowdfunded investments in the future. And we had a lot of questions come in. And uh, I am not the expert at this point on crowdfunding. So I'm not the expert on anything, which is why I have this podcast. I bring I bring the, the scholars, the academics, the minds, and those who are far more experienced and talented than I am. I bring them on to share their knowledge with you. And because it's a, it's a great way for me to pick up on what they know. So it's a cheap, easy, and effective way for me to ride the coattails of the successful before me. So one of those talented individuals I wanted to bring on to explain this crowdfunding thing a little more is Tracy Donovan. I'm going to have Tracy introduce herself with her background but I believe she probably has some sort of legalese disclaimer to give everyone, all these listeners. She's an attorney. So if you bear with us, Tracy, please give us your disclaimer. <laughs> yes, uh, I am not providing any legal advice. I'm not a registered uh, licensed attorney in Montana or, or in Ohio, where I reside. I'm a New York licensed attorney. And in any event, I am not providing legal advice to anyone. I'm just providing general information. So Tracy, you're a licensed attorney in New York. Uh, What is your specialty? What do you focus on? So my entire practice has been in the securities industry, a large, the largest part uh, doing more broker dealer work. When I started my practice at Jones Day in New York City, I was in the banking and finance group, and then part of that was derivatives, and then I had gone and was seconded to the trading floor at Bank of America Merrill Lynch, their public finance side, and so covered a lot of sales and trading, their derivatives, came back to Ohio after about 10 years, and worked for a registered investment advisor and then worked for another broker dealer that was also in public finance. But then I was on more on the underwriting side, covering uh, the bankers versus sales and trading. When I left there, I went to a new small startup asset manager that crowdfunded farmland. And that ultimately led us to meeting each other. Yeah, what an, what an interesting time to, to have that experience because we're starting to see some struggling, I think, in the market for alternative assets. And, and maybe through this discussion, we can <clears throat> hear what your, what your future outlook is on, on crowdfunding and their performance of farmland, the farmland sector, since you have uh, experience in that. I, I think, did you focus on row crops or sorry, permanent plantings like orchards, plantations more so than your traditional bean and corn row crop? 
That's correct. So the company, their main focus was on permanent crops and still is. And I don't think there are a lot of other companies out there offering that so much. Uh, most are in the row crop space. They did offer row crops as well. And I think row crops are definitely um, the safer investment. And so obviously you're going to get smaller returns, but you do see a lot of row crops. And that was a part that's part of their offerings that they add in uh, because I think it's always good to have as much diversity as you can in your portfolio. So how take me through that. How does crowdfunding farm land work? I mean, we we haven't seen it for ranch land. Uh, so how does it work for farmland? So in my experience and the way it was done at my last employer was so you would they would due diligence, they'd go out, they'd find something that fits within the parameters on, on crop type and <clears throat> let's say uh, regional area, they were mostly West Coast and then size, right? The offering size. So some of them could be, the, the row crops were a lot smaller offerings, uh, but let's say, let's just work from permanent crops. And they would be between two and maybe up to 10 to 12 million. Um, and what you would do, their model was that you start the due diligence period. So you put the property under contract. So now all of a sudden a time clock goes off before you lose your deposit. So in that time, they're doing due diligence and they have their team doing that. Uh, on the land, outside council, local council to where the property is, is typically hired because there's obviously a lot that goes into a real estate transaction. And particularly when you're purchasing it on behalf of investors, uh, you want to make sure that you do appropriate due diligence and disclose as much as you, you are aware of. And from there then they would do the offering. So they would put it out on their website and say, hey, we have this new offering. They'd hold, hold a webinar, give you information, have a Q&A period. And then um, from there, they would start taking investments, right? And you're hoping to have it fully syndicated by the end of the time where you would potentially lose your um, your deposit. Sometimes you can, obviously you're better and know this more because you are in real estate and you negotiate these things. So sometimes you can get an extension and work with the seller uh, to extend that period. Um, they would take in the investment money. If they hit their, their required amount that you need, then the offering is closed and hopefully it's fully syndicated. And the way that, that that would be done is the property, typically they would set up an LLC and you could do it where, you know, in the state that it's in, you could do a Delaware LLC, you could do it anywhere else. Um, and the LLC itself would be the, um, would hold fee title to the property. And so all of the investors would be beneficial owners of that property. So they would they would have OP units in an LLC. They wouldn't have their name on the title of the deed. That is correct. Well, it sounds like a sounds like a fairly standard real estate transaction. They're they're probably going to put the property under contract for 90 contingent for 90 days. 45 days to do due diligence. And I would assume 45 days to raise the outside investment via the crowd. Yeah, I would say it seemed like the majority of them were about 30 days, but they often would get an extension. Let's say if something came up and you're like, well, we weren't able to test X, Y, and Z, or, you know, maybe certain tests hadn't come in in time. Uh, that is was no fault of, you know, the purchaser. Um, so a lot of times extended 45 days. 
if it was something that came up kind of out of the blue, let's say, in the due diligence when it came to title, oftentimes uh, the seller would be even more willing to extend longer to get that fixed, whatever that solution was that we would have gone to them to say, hey, you need to get this cleared up or cleaned up. So is it more like 60 days then, 30 for due diligence and 30 for crowdfunding? Because I would imagine the the investors, the retail investors or the crowd, they don't want their money held in escrow for 45, 60, 90 days. They want you to get the deal done as quick as possible and place their money. Well, interestingly enough, so the crowdfunding, let's say you'd want it, the way that they would try to minimize their risk is to have it syndicated and fully funded within whatever that due diligence period is before you lose a deposit, right? However, the actual closing would take a lot longer, you know, typically, you know, 90 to, I would say a lot could go up to six months. So their money is being held without really working for them at that time before the close. So that, that kind of takes me into my next question. They, they must, they must go out and fund this, raise the investment after a successful due diligence. And then they have to do a filing. Is there a SEC filing required? So the way it would be, so these would be, these were offerings done under 506C. So they were all accredited investors. And once the deal closes, so typically you would file this form D with the SEC, um, but you would also do your blue sky uh, filings, which are among every state that you offered and sold in and typically also offer it. Um, that, so there's a time period, right? They say the for 10 days, 10 days or 10 business days from uh, the date that you offer it. However, because in, in, in practice, because real estate can take quite a while to close. Um, and then obviously if, if a deal is not syndicated, the deal falls apart. So that would be a lot of excessive paperwork to do if you did it right when you offered and maybe took their money. So you have to be careful also how you describe when your subscription is accepted, right? So the way we did it was that your you would get an acceptance of your subscription within a certain period after the closing of title to the property, right? So that is when um, in real estate, it's it's typically accepted that within 10 days of that, you would file your form D and make sure that your blue sky filings go out as well. Okay, you, you mentioned these are, some of these platforms out there are filing 506C, C is in Charlie. That's yes. a Reg D 506C filing. So are they a licensed dealer broker then? No. So it the company, the way that their offerings were, uh, they were not licensed. And so they're different. So there are two different exemptions you have, right? And sometimes people will confuse them. So under 506C, um, that is whether or not you have to actually register the securities. And so 506C is an exemption to that registration. The second thing that you have to look at is say, who can offer and sell securities, right? So typically that would be a broker dealer. However, there is an issuer exemption. So these offerings, uh, would be exempt from broker-dealer registration under an issuer exemption. Okay. So a lot of crowdfunding platforms you will see now, um, and I can't speak about any specifically, but I will just say certain crowdfunding platforms that are real, you know, registered uh, under Reg CF, 
you know, they are registered because they don't have an issuer exemption. So, right, they're offering securities of another entity. And part of that responsibility is they are a gatekeeper. So they have to do a certain amount of diligence as well in order to vet the investment a bit for the investor. And these these are not your, these structures, these are not your standard REITs, real estate investment trusts that have at least 97 I believe it's 97 different shareholders. No shareholder can own more than 15, 20%, something like that. These are these are not REITs. So how are they how are they structured again? You said normally an LLC is the investment vehicle that someone owns a an interest, an OP unit in. Yes. So you've got the LLC and then anybody has a benefit, you know you get your beneficial owners of the, that property and um, you know, it's whatever their pro rata interest is, then typically you would have someone managing the property um, or a tenant of the property. Right. And then you have a manager of the LLC itself of the investment that would manage the investment on behalf of investors. Um, that's really the simplest form, I think. So these are private placements. And so they're going under that exemption. And I'd say that's probably what you see out there quite a bit when um, using accredited investors, of course. So my, my, me as the retail investor, my name is not on the deed. Uh, it's not on the title which means I don't actually, I don't have a right, all the private property rights, the bundle of rights that come with real estate, I wouldn't be able to just go out there and mine gravel on this investment. Correct. Okay. So is, is, there, is there a sponsor or a GP or someone who has hurt money? Like you talk about these managers, there's a manager of the entity and a manager of the actual farmland asset do they have a vested interest? Is there alignment of interest with the me, the little guy, retail investor? Do they have hurt money? Some do. Uh, I've seen some structure it, right, where they have a decent investment in there as well so that you are aligned with the investors and some don't. It's very nominal to where they probably shouldn't advertise that they have skin in the game if it's so nominal. Um, but yeah, you can you can structure it where it's just flat out lease payments and there's not a lot of alignment and you get a flat management fee uh, or where the manager or you know, another entity related to the manager is invested in it as well. And then you could structure it where you get carry or, you know, it, it really just depends. And I think at the end of the day, it's really about getting feedback from your investors. What do you prefer? I, I, when it comes to a fee-based asset manager or a sponsor GP who has hurt money in it, but then also has carried interest. What, uh, what, what do you prefer? Is there, is there a better structure for farmland as opposed to oil and gas exploration, which has the potential for much higher returns or venture capital in the tech that has the potential for much higher returns? Is there, in your experience or your opinion, is there a, is there a better way to go that just fee-based asset manager or, or GP sponsor carried interest? As an investor, I would prefer that the sponsor has an alignment of interest with me that goes just beyond general reputation, right? When we are talking about the crowdfunding space, and I think during COVID, we saw you know, a lot of companies spring up and there was a lot of opportunity there. And I think what we are seeing and, and you see, especially with FTX, don't even get me started. Um, mm -hmm. But is that 
there isn't a lot of transparency with private placements. There's, but investors, you have to be the one to demand what you want. You don't have to just accept what's out there. So if the investor base starts demanding more, you can raise those standards a lot higher versus saying, oh, this is the only information that I'm getting. Um, if investors require more to say, well, this looks good on the surface, but I want to know more. And, and the more that 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 is the appetite of the investor that needs more information. And we want you to be aligned with us. We want you to have a big chunk in this. Uh, maybe we want a certain clawback potentially um, if, if something clearly is due to neglect or a failure to have proper oversight of this asset, right? To me as an investor, that's what I would want. And I, that kind of gets into these SEC or filings or exemptions there too, blue sky being state filings. Uh, you can really only promote, market these uh, private placements of alternative assets to accredited investors. You're not going to be promoting this to 18-year-olds uh, with a Robinhood account, right? Right. That's correct. So there, there kind of already is a understanding of risk and sophisticated investor. What are the, what are the limits? Is is there a minimum amount that one can invest as a accredited investor, and is there a maximum of what a offering can raise? So under five hundred six C, that is really up to the sponsor. Right. It's so one of the things what you decide is your minimum offering size really comes down to thinking ahead more on an administrative and operational level versus the legal or regulatory side, because these types of transactions, the smaller transactions and the more investors you have is very costly from an administrative and operational side. Um, you have to remember, you will have to give give a K-1 to every investor. So if you're able to have the larger offering size you could have, probably better overall for your business until maybe you are in a different space, right? Where you have found, you know, I would imagine that there are people working on and if not maybe they should or maybe it's out there and I don't know about it um there is an opportunity out there uh from the potential accounting side right because I find that that seems to be the biggest hiccup um or you know expense for a small crowdfunding company getting off the ground that yes, it could help you fund the smaller investors, right? To get up there so more people could participate for uh, smaller uh, minimum investment amounts. And also can help you because if you're new in the market, you don't have a reputation yet, right? And it's really about building trust with people and that can take time. So it could help you grow faster if you had smaller uh, minimum amounts, investment amounts. But uh, at the same time, it's very burdensome and costly. Sounds like you're you're proposing our audience come up with a fintech solution to reduce transaction and administrative costs associated with uh, accounting and K one distributions. Yes, I am. <laughs> That would that would reduce the the hurdle or the threshold for having someone come in at twenty thousand dollars versus twenty dollars and correct open this up to more people who don't have the twenty thousand who don't want to put in the twenty thousand they'd rather try it out at five hundred bucks first to see how it does and right. yeah so all of our entrepreneurs out there listening um, create a fintech solution for K one distributions please <laughs> yes. And another 
hurdle culture that you have to think about is the more investors you have, if you do 506C and they're accredited, there is that process of ensuring that they are accredited, right? So before, a lot of uh, investors would just certify, yes, I'm an accredited investor, but that doesn't really fly. And the SEC has been very clear that you can't just sign a certification. So basically, you want to ensure that all of your investors are accredited because one unaccredited person in your bunch could potentially spoil the entire investment. Um, and there have been opinions, um, uh, SEC decisions where, let's say, the the fund was only, let's say, $800,000 fund, and they found, you know, three or four unaccredited investors in there, and they used a third-party service, and they said, sorry, you need to unwind this and give everything back. So also make sure people out there that you do your diligence on the third-party um, services that you use uh, to cr- check accreditation. That's important. So if I'm if I'm the retail investor, the accredited investor, it sounds like you're going to have to verify my qualifications, which probably comes with a PFS, a signed personal personal financial statement, or three years of tax returns. What is the what is the security and uh, privacy concerns around that? Well, you're hoping when when someone's sending that information, you know, there are, again, as we know, there's safeguards and, and privacy rules. But under the safeguards rule, at the minimum under the FTC, I mean, depending on the size, but you should always ensure that you've got an encrypted you know, if it's by email that it is encrypted, uh, you shouldn't be sending your information via email if it's not encrypted or unless you have a website that is secure. Uh, maybe there's two-factor authentication. So just make sure that you're, as an investor, that you ask these questions before you send that information, right? But aside from that, general privacy, I mean, if you're if you're asking from knowing you in this time, I'm thinking your privacy concerns are more coming from uh, not from the data information or am I? I? I would, yeah, I would just, I would imagine that a lot of us do not want our PFS or tax returns leaked or compromised. So I'm assuming that there is a third-party encryption service for auditing, verifying my accreditation status? One would hope. So some, if you have people internally, they can do that. And then you're going to want to ask, you know, let's say it's ranch investor doing this. And you're going to say, Coulter, what is your, what are your systems? Or do we up those, upload these to the website? How safe is it? Um, if you use a third-party service, um, Someone could also, don't forget, if you have your own registered investment advisor, if you have a a licensed CPA in good standing, an attorney in good standing, or a broker dealer that you may use and maybe you have accounts with, they can provide um, an accreditation letter for you, right? Because they're already going to have that information. So that's a quick and easy way of fast accreditation. But not everybody has that, right? So let's say, you know, you don't. They're probably going to ask you for, so if you go by your uh, net worth, uh, remember it's net, not gross. So what what you would want to compare if you were the one that was collecting this, uh, the money for this investment and reviewing the investor you would want to make sure that you got uh, their latest um, credit report. A lot of people don't like that. And so they might not want to give you information, but then that's where you say, go to a lawyer, a CPA, or put them the other ways. The other thing is that you they could use a third-party service. Now, if you are that crowdfunding issuer or representing that issuer, you need to um, vet 
those third-party services as well. So for example, where I was before, um, sometimes people would say, oh, I use this third-party service online. But I would look at that third-party service and ensure that they had either a broker-dealer's license or that the person, because sometimes you've, you, you'll see them all over the internet. We do accreditation verification, right? And that's okay. But what you want to ensure is, is look at the, the actual person that did the accreditation. If they send it in, I would tell people in the company that, that confirmed accreditation, well, look at that person. Let's say it was an attorney or a CPA. Because these are licensed professionals, they need to be licensed in the state that they're in and they have to be in good standing. Because they're licensed professionals, just like you, Coulter, you have your real estate license, anybody can look that information up. So then I would direct them to say, okay, well, is this person, let's say that the company that it came from, this third-party service, is not a registered broker-dealer or an RIA? Um, I would say, okay, look at the person who signed the letter and look them up in the state and ensure that they are a registered attorney or a registered um, CPA and in good standing. And so then that's what they would do. Otherwise, what you could do is do that due diligence and let your investors know, hey, I would recommend the, these are the these are the services that we've already pre-approved. And so they could just go there, maybe pay a fee of $50, $70, get their accreditation letter and send it to you. Okay. Say I want to invest some other way. I'm thinking like uh, self-directed IRA, um, maybe a pension plan or even 1031 out of other real property. Are there other ways that I could invest that it's not just me, but some other ancillary um, investment vehicle I have? Sure. Um, and again, remember, it depends on how you set it up. So if you are the one doing the offering, you might say, well, a pension plan, that's, you know, the due diligence process for that when you're first starting out might not be, especially not with crowdfunding, might not be the greatest fit and might not really happen. You, you're going to have to have a track record. There's going to be a lot of due diligence. But, you know, a lot of people invest through self-directed IRAs, but it's up to the sponsor, right? So if you were crowdfunding, you might say, I don't want to accept self-directed IRAs. I don't know why you wouldn't, but maybe you don't want to, right? Um, so it really depends on what the operating documents, you know, the operating agreement says. So the operating agreement might say, no, we don't accept these investments from these types. But, you know, most will say, okay, le uh, legal entities, individuals, and whatnot. And each, if it's a legal entity, let's say it's you and your friend are an investor and you have a, a your small little LLC together. Um, you can do a look through uh, for accreditation for them or they're going to meet the net worth uh, requirements. But it really is a matter of how it is set up. So it's not a, a bright line. So if, if I could invest um, with a 1031 uh, exchange of real property, does that mean that there is now a Delaware statutory trust, a DST or a TIC, a tenancy in common involved? So the way you would do that, that would be a tenancy in common, right? <clears throat> and so before what we spoke about is that the LLC purchases this property and owns fee title to it, right? And then let's say you have 600 investors with a beneficial ownership in that. But the fee title ownership belongs to the LLC. But let's say I have a tick investor and they're like, yes, we, we want to come in this. So instead, what you will have, let's say the tick owns 40%. The tick investor owns 40%. Really, the LLC and that investor are tenants in common with each other. So then the LLC owns fee title and their pro rata interest is 60%. And then that other investor with is the tenant in common with the LLC. And then they're going to own that 40%. They're going to have fee title to the portion that they own. And that's very important. 
So, okay, there's this is getting split up a lot of different ways. Um, if I'm, whether I'm investing through an IRA at 1031, tenancy in common, uh, individually, uh, do I have a say? Do I get a say in management? Do I have any involvement in the operation of the farm or ranch? Well, <clears throat> let's put aside a... Um a 1031 exchange investor, right? <clears throat> so your general crowdfunding beneficial owner in the LLC, you, again, it depends on how you structure it. I can't imagine that you would because can you really deal with 600 investors with each their own little say and you know operations, management? It's really not feasible and not doable. It's not, it's not practical. And, and let's be honest, most people, this is a passive investment for them, right? Like I'm going to put my money here and I'm just going to put it away for a certain amount of time. And, you know, maybe I'll get a, a small income stream, whether from the sale of whatever the crops or the commodity is, or <clears throat> maybe it is rental income. But other than that, I don't think most people do want to say in it. So if I wanted to say, I should probably go form a co-op and maybe start a hippie commune. Yeah, you might want to do something different. <laughs> <laughs> do something different. Uh, what, is, what is my liquidity? How, how long... How long do you guys have me tied up for these crowdfunding services, these assets? Um, is there a hold period? Is there a lock? Is what it, can I just turn around and sell immediately? No. So minimum. So first of all, you have to go into a, a private placement, and the intent is to buy and hold, uh, to buy it, and you hold it to the maturity of whatever the transaction. Uh, is but so so let's get to the first part whatever that hold period is a lot of times i mean when you're when you're dealing with let's say agriculture or, or farmland i mean you're not like in this to be i'm going to get loaded right you are in this for um potentially a variety of reasons um right now obviously a big reason is people are very interested in where their food comes from uh, regenerative land practices are really important to people. Typically, you're going to want a longer hold period for it to be worth your while. And sometimes it's just good, put your money there. And you, you know, at exit, you get some land appreciation. Um, you cannot just turn around and sell it with a view to, there's a minimum hold period no matter what per regulations uh, with a private placement. Um, which is typically one year, at least a one-year hold period. Um, but the way you would structure the investment to be worthwhile is standard, I'd say, is about 10 years with the option to extend for another year or two. I think for people new in the space and for investor trust and maybe to get off the ground, is a good thing to do is to maybe tease and talk to your potential investors if that's something you want to do, is to provide them a few different model scenarios on what you think from a five, seven, and 10-year hold, and then you know see their preferences. Because when you're new and you don't really have that track record or of performance and there's not a lot of diligence someone could do on, you know, brand new ranch investor or crowd funder for ranches, right? So you're going to say people are putting a lot of faith in you. And so you're going to want to gauge what are people going to feel most comfortable with at first. But again, these are all just real strategy and business decisions. Well, I'm thinking life events happen and what, what, happens today if someone invested in this long-term stable expected to be stable farmland asset um divorce death down the road 
causes me to make other decisions for my family and my future. Is there liquidity at all? Is there a secondary marketplace? Can I go out and put my own interest on Craigslist and sell it? Well, you have to be very careful in this part. So as far as secondary transactions, one, there there are two, two separate things is to understand it has been very popular. This is just my clearly my own opinion, but I, I kind of laugh about it because a lot of people, uh, retail investors seem to get pretty jazzed about secondary market and just in general with types of alternative uh, asset classes. And, you know, it's it's been the rage, particularly when it comes to like because of NFTs and you have all these new interesting products and then you see oh there's a secondary market and i don't in in my own personal opinion <clears throat> i don't really find that there is a true secondary market this is in general and then i'll get to your farmland and specific to the question that you ask a secondary a, a true secondary market is is when there really are a lot of buyers out there and where you're not worried too much about this, you know, uh, huge loss in your initial investment based on, you know, there's not a lot of takers out there. Um, from a regulatory perspective, if you are the one, let's say I'm selling it, there are restrictions on there. Aside from whatever in your operating documents, right, there could be certain transfer restrictions, whatnot. But you have to be very careful. There's been a lot more GP-led uh, secondary transactions. So that would be, for example, if one of your investors came to you and said, we're facing undue hardship, we really need to um, get, get rid of this. Well, it's not that easy, right? From a regulatory perspective, one, you need to be very careful. You should consult counsel. You want to make sure that depending on what the structure is, not too many investors uh, do that. There's a certain limit before you could potentially change it, uh, change the tax consequences or change how it's going to be looked at, whether that be um, certain treasury regulations. Um, <clears throat> and so it, it can get rather sticky. Uh, the safest way is to say, okay, and then they would have to use a broker dealer. I think it's very important that investors understand that, you know, maybe other unsavvy investors might um, might take it and you might, they might buy it at par for what you purchased it. Um, but that's just maybe a potentially another unsavvy investor because the reality of it is you, would should be expecting a serious haircut if you're getting rid of a non-liquid investment like that. And there's a, I mean, there is a reason that the hold periods are longer, you know, with a short hold period, you know, you're not, you're not really expecting to get a lot from that investment. This is a buy and hold. It's a, it's a longer term uh, commitment. Yeah. It sounds like what I hear from you is, uh, you're taking a niche asset, a niche marketplace, farm and ranch land, and you're making it even more niche by dividing it into OP units. So that limits your market. There's there's not a lot of buyers for farmland to begin with. And now there's even few for people who'd want to buy an interest in farmland <clears throat> at the right price. Um, so yeah, it would take, and that's why we have brokers. That's why we we have ranch brokers is to to facilitate a marketplace uh, efficient market theory and you would want to really that that person you know there the, the transfer restrictions there are a lot of regulations that a person has to look at when they are selling a security to another person and so they should definitely consult an attorney um about that uh, let's not start on regulations, Tracy. Yes, I know. I know you. <laughs> <laughs> One, it's just not that entertaining. And two, it, I lose sleep at night how much I hate regulations. Uh, so we talked about some 
some managers and is this, there's gotta be some fee structures involved to compensate the managers. From what you've seen with alternative assets and uh, private placement, do the investors just get the ship feed out of them? Is is it worth it to go through professional management, uh, these type of syndications uh, or would direct, I mean, assuming you had the ability for direct placement that you just go out and buy 160 acres of farmland in Iowa yourself. Uh, but what is, what is a normal fee structure? People just being feed to death on these deals, syndications? Well, I don't think so. Um, now it obviously it's going to be a little bit more than if you were to just, you know, put your money into mutual funds, um, maybe, but it's a little, it's a little higher. I would say you would go row crops, uh, generally kind of lower than you would maybe a permanent crop or a development deal. Whoever you are buying, if you are an investor, you should see what your investment would look like net of all fees. So, but also remember when someone is bringing you these very, um, in a way, these types of deals. So if you were to do uh, certain, you know, of these ranch lands, whether it's in Montana or Wyoming, um, whether it's bison or who knows, right? At the end of the day, it's kind of really bespoke. And there's a lot of work that goes into that. And um, I think investors have to understand that they're paying for that as well, right? Um, you do need, you're not getting rich on this. I'm telling you that, right? You aren't um, If when you are the one offering it. So you need to have, I think most investors, depending on what you're going to do with the land. I mean, a lot of people also invest with, what they like or what they're passionate about, right? Could be, hey, Coulter, if you're going to come up with an offering and you are going to show me that, you know, you, you're going to do these regenerative practices that maybe weren't there before and here's what you're going to do with the land. I'm kind of investing my heart in that, you know, I have to say, um, personally, from a, a visual perspective, you know, I came out to Montana and you took me around to a bunch of ranches and just saw all this land. It was the most amazing experience ever. Uh, but it was really amazing to, to experience that with you because you are so knowledgeable. And this is, and I'm going to turn the tables on you in a minute. So when you're when you get through some of your questions, I am turning the tables on you. Fair uh, enough. But but seeing um you you showed me this is land right here where they were not using any regenerative practices. And I visually, not being an expert, not being that this is has been in my wheelhouse or what I've grown up with, right next to a ranch that has been employing regenerative practices, it's startling. And it's even just from a visual perspective, um, was very effective. And, you know, I've been very excited about the things that you are um, wanting to do because just looking at it and, and seeing that, like, look, that could take a decade for that land to come back if it can or not, or even longer, you know, seeing that wild sagebrush and how beautiful that was in certain places. It was just, what a stark contrast of two properties next to each other. Absolutely. Well, let's wrap up the final question then is, um, <clears throat> what happens if one of these platforms goes belly up? If they go bankrupt and I have an interest in an LLC that they are managing, well, one, can my LLC go bankrupt? And two, what happens if the crowdfunding platform goes bankrupt. How do I stay protected? Again, it depends on how, what the documents say, what the operating agreement says. My advice to potential investors, do your homework on the, who is offering the deal. 
how much do they really know about it? Now, let's say to a novice or someone that like, oh, I don't really know much about it. And they sound like they know what they're doing. I know like how many agronomists work for you? Um, how, how much experience did this person grow up doing what they do? If they didn't, who is there working for them, you know, that's, that's grown up doing this and understands what it is. And so if, if let's say one of those, uh, platforms goes belly up, hopefully, um, the manager, uh, has hired a very, very good operator, um, or if it's a tenant structure, a very good tenant. Um, and then they will try to look for a manager to replace them. Um, if that does not happen, let's say if it is a very productive farm, um, I guess you could, uh, you could, or, or ranch, you could sell it, right? So you could sell it to someone else. And then that's about getting in the weeds of what your offering documents say. What what's the operating agreement say? There's always going to be provisions um, if if there's some sort of termination event before anticipated, um, and that's stuff that you really have to you have to take it upon yourself to do as much diligence as you possibly can. <clears throat> you have to be your own best advocate at the end of that's the day. Right. All right, you want to you want to interrogate. Yes. Yes. Yeah, so, you know, I have been listening to your podcast and I've gone and I think I've listened to almost every episode. I had a friend introduce us uh, quite some time ago, maybe six, maybe seven months ago now. And I love your podcast, uh, Coulter. And so how long I love your story. So I think your listeners and maybe here or there, a lot of people might know you, but I know I tell everybody about your podcast. Um, I think you're fascinating. Um, You grew up on a ranch and your family grew up ranching. When did your family come to Montana? Your your last name, DeVries, where are you from? And when did your family get to Montana? I, I believe they got to, they arrived in the Montana Territory. What would today be Sweetgrass County, uh, Big Timber area on the Yellowstone River, sometime between 1884 and 1888, and that was so. Yeah, that was pre pre statehood uh, Montana Territory. But then, as part of part of a new homestead, opening up a new area, they relocated to the Red Lodge, Montana area around 1906 so roberts roberts montana north of red lodge that homestead was uh 1906 and i think it just come kind of just came out of crow indian territory at that time okay and your family itself you you grew up on a ranch yeah so it was it was the uh the homesteaders kind of fit this uh my area was first settled for coal mining, and that brought a lot of uh, immigrant diversity. We have a lot of Norwegians, Finns, um, Germans, Dutch. Uh, De Vries is a Dutch name. We have a lot of Italians, Irish. So the diversity, because um, during during those old immigration periods, you can get kind of uh, concentrated with with uh, nationalities, just depending on geopolitically what was going on. Uh, Ours was very diverse and, but they all, they all kind of fit one model and it was diversification of, of the homestead. So everyone had a little bit of irrigated hay, a little bit of dryland crop, uh, mostly wheat and barley, and a little bit of pasture. Well, in my, when I was younger, those three dryland, crop, irrigated hay, and livestock pasture. It it changes over time with markets. Um, First it was sheep, then cattle took over. Um, Back in the day, a lot of people had, we're we're the homesteaders. So everyone had milk cows, chickens, eggs, 
pigs, uh, very diversified. And just like the United States ag economy, it kind of became, um, became specialized over time, but that was, it was a very fun experience being so diversified in, a, in an area with uh, a lot of, a lot of smaller acreage type, what we'd consider today, smaller acreage type farmers, almost, almost subsistence farming, uh, going back to the homestead area. But yeah, it was, it was interesting. Got to experience a lot. And so you mm-hmm. are, you have a, a, an agronomy degree as well, right? No, I have, I have a finance degree okay. with a minor in ag business and a minor in entrepreneurship. Okay, but you've got the real life degree in ranching. <laughs> yeah, the uh, well, <laughs> that that one was uh, that one was self. Yeah, I had to pursue other forms of education, um, working with more progressive ranchers who've been through the Savory Hub. Um, they might have studied Alan Savory as far back as the early '80s. And then I went through ranching for profit, um, got into permaculture, PA Yaoman, uh, key line, any, anything that was more advanced, because again, going back to the old homestead area era, a lot of families never changed much. And you can still see that today. Uh, the practices just didn't, just didn't adapt or evolve a lot. And that's, I mean, that's really what I was, it's a good generational knowledge is something we should value. And it's unfortunate. I think we're losing generational knowledge across the U S and agriculture. We're losing it very rapidly. Um, so it's something we have to mix with bringing in holistic management, regenerative agriculture. Uh, and now I think we need to get back into diversification because there was a time that uh, we started to specialize and that I was part of that shift. All of our dryland crop, uh, winter wheat, spring wheat, barley was planted back to grass for your standard Montana hay and cattle operation. And when I say standard, it was very standard. It was calving in uh, January and February when it's minus 20 out trying to keep calves alive. Um, so that you could have the, the theory was so that you have bigger calves, uh, at weaning time, weaning was straight off the cow onto a truck, which is not, uh, a practice I would encourage today. I don't encourage calving in January and February today. Um, but yeah, I mean, it was, it was standard, very standard. There's good, there's good aspects to generational knowledge and there's, there's some things that needed to change. And I, I took it upon myself to learn those things that needed to change. So let me ask you this. You are, so for the non-Montanans, original West, uh, you know, people already in the West, you've got this Yellowstone effect right now, right? Um, And so this is for all the listeners that are, you know, from all the other places and watch the show. So you have this, you are about, hey, come in, invest in Montana. Do you find that, you know, that show is really about this, almost this dynamic of of some Montanans are like outsiders stay out. And then there's the saying of like, well, we need people to come in to, for progress, right? Where do you stand on that? And what are your thoughts it it's it's mixed feelings for sure. Um, I guess I I would start by saying you know I I want to celebrate Taylor Sheridan's success. I think that's what he's accomplished is amazing. Uh, but I do empathize significantly. Me being a fifth generation Montana and my daughter being sixth generation. <clears throat> and when I say fifth and sixth, it's not like the DeVries's pump them out when we're 18 years old. On average, it's probably, you know, every 30 years is a generation. (laughs) Um, So I I tremendously empathize with the the rapid 
high value change that that brings to Montana. It's gentrification. And anytime someone is being gentrified, it means someone else with more money uh, has a vision for what you have and you're not included in that vision. <laughs> um, and so that, you know, Montana, we have, we have some of the lowest uh, average incomes in the, in the nation. It's hard. You can't compete with outside money coming in and, and people rightfully feel pushed out. They, they feel, um, well, I'm going to get into another social issue. They feel, uh, oh, what is, what is that where someone takes your culture? Uh, appropriated. Appro they feel appropriated. You know, the, the, the true rough and tough cowboys are being appropriated. But, um, you know, I, I definitely see both sides of it. And I, I kind of value both sides of it. To have culture, you have to have that staunch i'm going to dig my heels into the dirt i'm going to take a stand this is our culture this is what we are about but i also believe culture is meant to be shared and and people if someone appreciates what you're doing and they appreciate uh how you live and the lifestyle you've created uh you know that that's a huge validation for what you've done and i i think i think we can all um, we take, we take pieces of other, everyone's culture. And I think that, I think that blending and assimilation diversity, I think it's a good thing. I, I like diversity. Well, I certainly enjoyed my visit out there and I'm looking forward to coming back out, but I do have another question for you. So the last real question is, um, your, if you could do whatever you want right now, you're, you know, what would be your dream sort of structure investor and then with the land type ranch in Montana? My, my vision, um, I mean, I guess maybe this, this kind of puts me in, in the camp of, um, I'm, I'm more okay with opening up Montana and being inclusive. It, it definitely does say that I am, I value uh, sharing this experience. I, I value it, share uh, what we have. I would like it to be protected and conserved and it is, it is worth protecting and conserving. And I think we can do that by sharing Montana as a culture, our ecology, this, this last best place. Um, so my dream would be to see a platform where someone can invest as little as $5 into a ranch to keep it a ranch, to make sure that it is uh, open spaces. Open spaces are worth protecting the view shed. Um, to someone can invest $5. I'd like to see someone create this, this NFT uh, low cost marketplace, liquid marketplace where you can invest in projects of regenerative agriculture so that we have a better balance of wildlife and livestock. We have a better balance of uh, hunters supporting hunters who are conservationists, um, supporting uh, an actual yield uh, income coming from that that ranching property, which is you know it's its own micro ecosystem is what it is, and so it's it's capitalistic conservation. I'd like to see uh, that the experience being shared. Someone can can come out and visit the ranch and see the effect that their $5 may have had, uh, locked gates, you know, that's, that's, that's an unfortunate, but understandable, uh, issue with what we have in Montana. Locked gates are exclusivity. Someone wants it for themselves. They really, really value it. And I, I cannot blame them for that. Uh, but I, I would like to, see more people get involved and and take an interest both fiscally 
in person, come out and experience it like you did, Tracy. And um, I'd like I'd like them to feel like, wow, my five bucks helped with this wildlife corridor. It helped with better grazing practices, better water management for the for the watershed that Montana is for most of the United States. And yeah, I, I would I think technology is going to help conservation, and I want to be part of that solution. Great. Okay. I mean, I have a million more questions, but we can do this another time. (laughs) Hey, thanks for tuning into the Ranch Investor Podcast. That pretty much sums up this episode. I hope you enjoyed listening to Tracy speak about crowdfunding farmland investments. This is something we are hoping to canvas further at Ranch Investor. We would like to explore crowdfunding ranch investments. Many of you are probably aware of that by now. We've been teasing it. We've been testing it. We've been canvassing and surveying it, and there's more of that to come. On that note, please comment on any of our social media pages out there in the digital ghetto. Let us know what you think about crowdfunding ranches as an investment. Thanks for listening, and hope to hear more of your feedback from topics as well as crowdfunding ranch investments click subscribe on your streaming platform so you know when the latest episode has dropped be the source of knowledge and the maven that other professionals are excited to refer